It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. I had to go about it. This is Final Word Cricket Podcast Season 14. It may be episode 38, 39. Who knows? It's hard to keep track of these things at the moment. Taxonomically, we have difficulties. Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins with you. I'm home. I'm home, baby. Back in Melbourne, where I belong, where it is football final season. It's September. There's that watery kind of early spring sunlight starting to come up over the horizon. Uh, Apologies to people in England for whom they're on the other end of that. They're they're going to start descending into winter sometime soon. But you've still got September. Don't let go of glorious September. And uh, you were making the most of glorious September, Adam. You were back on the cricket field today. I was, yes. I'm going to have that, um, the, the, the gravelled voice of someone who's been on the cricket field all day. But in the most stunning circumstances at Wormsley, which, you know, even on a bad day is a beautiful place to to watch or play cricket. So real, real, real privilege to um, be out there again. Um, I did the Billy Midwinter, having played for the Authors against the Taverners last year. This year, I played for the Taverners against the Authors uh-huh. and switched allegiance. But it was all. I ended up fielding for the for the Authors for a slab of time as well because they had five separate injuries <laughs> and needed to um, have because it was quite warm out there. Yep. So they had to come out. And two of my Authors teammates did calves, including um, former guest on the show Steve Kinane. After one over, um, beat Monty Panisar outside the off stump. He's like, right, that's me done. I've done my calf straight off the field. That's it. <laughs> one over into the day. But uh, yeah, no, it was a, it was a belter of a day. We won by about twenty four runs. You know, those Tavs events are always brilliant up there. I bowled five overs of um, uh, ferocious off spin, and by that I mean basically bowling medium medium pace and trying to rip it, and didn't have any uh, success in terms of the wickets column, but bowled pretty well. Uh, and um, and yes, we we managed to get home thanks to Johnny Barron, the uh, uh, broadcaster who I 
worked with occasionally at Surrey and, and just returned home from working on the Sarastra Premier League. Um, he picked up three late wickets and, and we snuck over the line. So a great day had by all. It's about 2 to 11 uh, local time here now. I've gotten back to London. I'm absolutely spent. Um, so um, even though we have a lot to get through and it's a busy show, yes, uh, uh, Jeff, you'll be very much steering the ship tonight, I suspect. <laughs> Uh, well, I have had time to have some sleep after the long, long, long journey back. Um, so, yeah, I might be in slightly better fettle than you. There's a lot on this week. There's the, the Asia Cup is happening, um, the Australian men's white ball stuff in South Africa, Sri Lanka's women and New Zealand's men playing in England. Huge result for Sri Lanka in that series as well. We'll have more on that. A couple of new final word daily hosts over the week. You might have noticed Jeremy <laughs> Coney has done a couple, did one with Alex Hartley, and I believe on the show that's just coming in as we're recording. He's uh, done an episode with Andy Zaltzman as well. So I look forward to catching up on that. Yeah, nice to keep expanding the, the number of people who've um, been on the Final Word Daily as co-host. And uh, yes, uh, looking forward to seeing Zoltz's take on, I don't know, say the 30-second summary and, and stuff like that. So yeah, it's been great to be back on the bike with the daily shows across the T20s and, um, and the one day as I'll be back on the tools for those in Cardiff on Friday. Can't stop, won't stop and all the rest. And so, for, I mean, for people who are listening to this show going, hang on, you're an Australian podcast, you're run by two Australians, why are you doing daily shows for the England-New Zealand series and not the Australia-South Africa series? That's because we're not in South Africa, whereas um, Adam is at most of the England-New Zealand games. So there's a, there's a degree of pragmatism in terms of what we cover um, as well as a component of idealism. They, they tend to have to coexist. We'll have Tanya Aldred on the show later to talk about cricket and climate change, um, her one of her particular beats, including the Edgebaston Go Green game. We'll have, have some details on what they've been doing there. Um, the Surrey game that finished in a couple of days and, and more on the county championship next week because we're halfway through the round, the current round here. But Josh DeKeris news, people are very... Yeah, very keen on the career of Josh DeKeris on this show, the son of Michael Atherton, who we, we spoke about with Michael Atherton when we interviewed him, and we've also done story time related history stuff that leads up to Josh DeKeris. He took eight for during the last round um, or the current round, but, but yeah, more to come on that. Yeah, it, 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 the game's still going. So the Surrey game that I was commentating on on Sunday and Monday finished within three overs on day three, I think. They smashed Warwickshire by an innings, enforcing the follow-on and so on. So I'm actually not at the Oval tomorrow for that. However, I am at the Oval recording an interview. Uh -huh. um, that's a little little teaser there. Guess who I might be speaking to. And yeah, Josh DeCares. I watched him bowl quite a bit um, when I was doing Middlesex stuff uh, over the the two previous seasons and there's something there I mean he gets it up and gets it down as, as you want to do as a finger spinner mm -hmm. picked up a seven for at Rose Bowl earlier in the season now an eight for at Chelmsford he started his career opening the batting for Middlesex now he's down batting at eight and bowling off spin um, Giant Yadav was meant to be bowling the spin for Middlesex this week but his visa got held up so um, that's probably given DeCares another opportunity to be the frontline spinner and he's taken it with both hands so um yeah, interesting. I mean, that, that's a, a note in passing. But yeah, as, as you point out, Jeff, we're only part of the way through the round. So we'll, we'll deal with that more comprehensively next week as we make our way towards the end of the England domestic season. Well, he might, if he doesn't um, end up playing for England, he might qualify for Portugal given his... His family history. Um, so maybe you know, maybe he and you can have an aim to play for Portugal together. I, I didn't know how that is. I didn't realise that was a one of the connections. Yeah. So so through Frank de Caris, who so that you, you trace it back through the Caribbean because they were the the family was yeah. based in 
uh, is it Guiana? I think it was. Guiana. Um, yeah. And but before that, the parents. I think the parents of of his grandfather Frank, who played for the West Indies in the nineteen twenties, came from Portugal. Or they were sort of Anglo Portuguese. Um, there was there was a big English community that lived and worked in Portugal at the time as two maritime nations. Um, so that's where it comes from. I, I, right. I don't know if that counts under EU rules to be able to go that far back. <laughs> Frank also played in in that test match in Jamaica in 1930, where uh, which we've talked about repeatedly. Uh, the last test mm. of Wilfred Rhodes uh, and the uh, the first triple ton. Yep. Andy Sandham's 325, and um, so that, that yeah that that through line goes all the way back to the, as you say the 1920s and 1930s in that family. It was his only test uh, series. He did go on a tour to Australia, but um, I'm led to believe from further research that he didn't play a test on that tour because he was uh, a bit too fond of the nocturnal activities on that tour. He oh, was right. he was um, <laughs> he was living the high life and, and and thus was out of favour when it came to picking the eleven when he toured Australia in the late 20s. But anyway, talking of Portugal, talking of spreading cricket around the world, the Olympics. It, is it on? It's on. It's kind of on. It might almost be on. We, we haven't had the official report that it's on, but we've had the unofficial somebody who knows about it leaking it report that it's on. Yeah, it was in the Times uh, overnight, um, the same paper that Mike Atherton writes for now to, to continue that theme, that the executive board of the IOC will sign off for the Los Angeles 2028 events this week, this coming week. And it's got a bit under the radar, I reckon, in the last year or so. The conversation around cricket into the Olympics was reaching the boil around the Tokyo Olympic Games in in middle of 2021, but we haven't heard an awful lot in the last two years. But presumably behind the scenes, it's been going well because remembering that the logic here for the IOC is that they desperately want to engage India and Mm. the Indian subcontinent more generally in the Olympic Games. And with the probability of Mumbai hosting the the Games in 2036, so it's Brisbane 2032, then in all likelihood it's going to be Mumbai 2036. Mm. They want to get the Indian hearts and minds, you know, captivated by Olympic sports and what better way of doing that than cricket. Now, it's likely to go in alongside flag football, which is of interest to those who, um, who, who uh, I don't know an awful lot about flag football, mm. but I guess it's the, it's like American football, but without tackling. It's like um, touch rugby or, or something like that. Right. Um, I just assume you just throw the flag. You know, it's really hard to get much distance, (laughs) but if you roll it up just right, it's like a T-shirt cannon maybe, just just fire at the length of the field. It's kind of – it's an emblem of the Olympic movement expanding again in terms of the the number of events and sports it wants to include, whereas, you know, I feel sorry for softball and baseball, which are other, you know, ball and bat sports, which are missing in Paris 2024. They've had that in-out relationship, baseball and softball, with the Olympics going back to the 90s. But it feels like cricket's going to be partly a beneficiary of that. A reminder, it has to be the T20 format. It could be one-day cricket, but in terms of the short forms, you occasionally hear um, people talk about the 100 being in the Olympics or T10 being in the Olympics. The IOC only accepts events which have an existing world championship structure. And of course, we have that in T20 cricket. And it'll be only eight teams, much as it was for the women at the Commonwealth Games at Edgbaston last August, wasn't it, which you're at, Jeff. Uh, yep. Now, and that's just, yeah, but, but that doesn't mean it's, it, it, it's, Yes, it'll only be eight teams, mm-hmm. which in a way feels exclusionary, but it's not. There's methods for the madness on why crickets push so hard because what you do is you unlock all of this NOC funding that is there for Olympic sports in, in many countries. Mm-hmm. That's why Brazil's women have gone professional uh, so quickly in their journey. It's because they were pretty sure that 
cricket was going to become an Olympic sport and thus they'd be able to unlock funding from their National Olympic Committee and, and so it will be for other nations who aren't anywhere near the top eight right now but they might see you know the longer term benefits of, of investing in that sport with it being in the Olympic Games so it's not just about you know whether this will be like a lot of sports you see reach the Olympic Games, there's a debate around whether it'll be the pinnacle or not. Tennis is the prime example of that. And sure, you know, will an Olympic gold medal be the pinnacle of the, say, the men's and women's T20 game? It may not. It probably won't be. I suspect the World Cup will still be seen as more, more, more prestigious. However, it will be the trigger to get a lot more money uh, for developing nations. So if, if the major nations can play their role there, well, I don't see any downside. And the A-team thing is also just about the difficulty in getting games on because you'll have limited facilities. So if you, you're running an Olympics yes. in Los Angeles, there aren't going to be a lot of cricket grounds kicking around. They'll have to find ways to improvise, essentially. Um, to, to get the grounds that are needed, like at the Com Games. It needs to be yep. played at one venue probably. Maybe you could have it at a couple of grounds if it were in England or something coming up into the future or in Brisbane potentially you could split between AB Field or whatever. But if, they've got, if they're using the Gabba, for instance, in Brisbane, they're probably not going to be able to play cricket at the Gabba because they'll have everything else at the newly redeveloped Gabba, all the track and field and so on will be there. So you've got one ground. That's it. You've got how many pitches can a curator get up on one ground to be able to use over the course of two weeks and you've only got two weeks because the Olympics are two weeks so you've got to cram in enough matches to knock everybody out have a finals series as it were a couple of semi-finals and a final at least and then get you know to, to get into that gold medal bout and so if you've got more teams if you've got 16 teams or whatever it is you just literally don't have enough time and enough surfaces to play that many games yeah I, I think where we would land is is one ground for the men one ground for the women um, and in Brisbane, you know, th- there are ways of of managing that as there will be in Los Angeles. But yeah, feels like this is a decision that's finally being made at the end of this week. Well, it's uh, it's exciting for those of us, particularly someone like you, who is a massive Olympic tragic as well as being a True. massive cricket tragic. <laughs> it will line up beautifully. If only they could get Eurovision involved in some way as well, then <laughs> all of your interests would come together. There is some truth to that. It does, um, yeah, it did, it did. That make me think about that a little bit today. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, 2028. Yeah, how much steam will I have to go at the pace I'm going at the moment in 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 five years' time? Well, that'll be an incentive. Like it'll be for a lot of cricketers too. I, I reckon there'll be a generation of players who who've been on the T20 circuit who, if the Olympics are there for them, they might think, oh, you know what? Um, maybe playing for my country a little bit longer, which will be a good thing, of course, in, in the current climate, is something I'm, I'm more interested in doing than simply being on the um, T20 domestic franchise IPL, mini IPL circuit, because they, there's the lure of winning an Olympic medals. I'm not saying that'll apply for everybody, but there'll be some who, who like me and like you, Jeff, you, you love the Olympics as well, would be drawn into the magic of being part of something like that. I'd, I'd be I'd be drawn to sticking around myself if it's, you know, if you ask me right now, are you going to be covering yeah. cricket in 2032? Look, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be that confident in saying yes, but that would be an incentive to to cover a home Olympic Games and and be involved with yep. that in one way or another. So, yeah, who who knows what the what the allure may be. We had some sad news come through during the week. The the tragedy and comedy double sided coin, I suppose, with the the Heath streak non 
death announcement last week when he was uh, protesting that very strongly and saying, I'm, I'm still here. Uh, well, over the, uh, the seven days since then, Heath Streak has passed away. He had serious cancer that he was fighting that we mentioned at the time. It's a really sad piece of news to come in, 49 years old, and, and such a big character, such a huge character from that that 90s, early 2000s era of, of cricket where you know we've lost so many, it seems, of, of the big characters of that era in the last couple of years, um, and, and Heath Strake at 49 years old, the, the latest to go. Yeah, I can recommend Jared Kimber's obituary uh, that he published on his um, Substack and his other platforms. That A point out of that that I was reminded of something where, where I met Heath Streak as a kid. He was just so big. He was such a, a, a huge character with massive hands. And the Dean Jones game, or the, the 100 he made for the World Eleven against Australia in the March of 1996, remember Heath Streak being down at fine leg and as you do as kids at the MCG, you know, running, running over to third man and fine leg to, to get autographs. And I remember how big Heath Streak was. And in that Kimber piece, there's a reminder there that by the time he retired from tests, he'd taken one-fifth of Zimbabwe's wickets, full stop in that form of the game, 21% to be precise. So, you know, he peaked early. He was a guy who in the early to mid-90s um, was the man for all seasons for Zimbabwe all around the world. His record sort of held up. There was a decline there as a fast bowler and that you know, corresponds with when Zimbabwe kind of went off a cliff from a cricketing perspective. He was captain for much of that awful time where the country was stuffed and he was uh, you know, a representative of it as the national captain and you know of course the, the the various protests and he you know he left the Zimbabwean team under protest at one stage himself but you know along with Andy Flower the, the two greats of that era um, Zimbabwe's greatest era through the 90s when they became a full member and of course you know we have covered on the final word before that he was banned um, by the ICC for passing information to bookmakers and you know he was very ill through all that time as well when he was suspended so yeah it's it's just awful that he's passed away so young but you look at his record 65 test matches which would be unheard of for a Zimbabwean player now by the way like the idea of playing that many test matches when Zimbabwe were being treated better um, by the cricketing world he took 216 wickets at 28, which is the same average as Stuart Broad, and he had no support. You know, he, he was doing this largely on his own. No Zimbabwean test player has ever taken more than 80 wickets, with the exception of Streak and, and you know, a further 239 one-day wickets. You know, he averaged 22 with the bat at test level. Again, going back to this Kimber piece, like when he became captain and his bowling started to decline, his batting went through the roof. He was a genuine all-round option for Zimbabwe towards the end of his career because he was such a fighter. He always wanted to give something back. He always wanted to make a contribution and did so around the world too. He was um, a very popular member of the county circuit when the news came through on Sunday morning. Um, Warwickshire were wearing black armbands because he was a former captain of Warwickshire. And yeah, there's a strange statistical column here. He took 499 first-class wickets. It's a shame that he didn't get one more, but it didn't uh, matter an awful lot when you consider the footprint that he left as a as a cricketer, as a fast bowler, as a captain, as a leader. Well, Hanif Muhammad, 499, Heath Streak, 499, not such a bad number to have. And that's my abiding memory of him is being the one having to stand up against everybody else. I remember watching them play Australia in that period 20, 25 years ago and and being so much more impressed by him than by the Australian team. You know, you'd, you'd be at a game as an Australian and everybody's jumping up and down and cheering for whatever Australia's doing. And I was thinking, well, it's easy for these guys. You know, they've got 
a team of really good players around them. They've got all the support and Zimbabwe are six for nothing much and he's got to come out and try to do with do the job with the bat after having done most of it with the ball as well. You know, that, that to me was what stood out. You know, I remember watching him play with this immense admiration at the time, you know, when I knew a lot less about the game than I do now, but just the, the simple fact of having to be the one to carry the weight of a, a team where other players weren't as developed, um, where the development systems weren't in place, where the funding wasn't there and where they were playing underneath a, a mad and often brutal regime at home and a deeply corrupt regime at home where money didn't end up where it was supposed to and where players didn't get support in the way that they would elsewhere. Yeah, and, and um, you know, it isn't it isn't linked to the fact that he's passed away that we're talking more and more about Zimbabwe. That's been happening anyway. But, yeah, hopefully there'll be a renewed focus on this when you, when you see what Zimbabwe were able to do when they were treated more seriously uh, by the powers that be. And I acknowledge that a lot's happened off the field that's made that harder. Um, but it feels as though they're, they're getting closer to being re- well and truly back on their... Uh, back on solid footing uh, and that's going to take you know what's that old thing about it takes a village to raise a child like you know not to be patronizing but when you've got um, countries that have done it tough who are full members it's in the gift of the other full members to make that reintegration easier and I'm you know we, we talked a couple of weeks ago about Zimbabwe being hosted by England for a test match for the first time in it'll be 22 years by the time they are here in 2025 and Australia hosted Zimbabwe in some limited overs matches last year and um, let's hope that you know other countries start doing the same, especially when it comes to the test format, given they're, they're currently outside of that World Test Championship structure. Right. There's been a lot of cricket going on over the last week. Um, we'll get to a fair bit of it in the second section, but I think in the first section we do need to talk about Mitchell Marshapalooza. It has been, I mean, what? A bumper week for uh, the, the the guy we've described as the nice man of Australian cricket. 92 not out of 49 balls in the first T20. Uh, 79 not out of 39 balls in the second. Uh, the first time setting up a massive score of 226 for Australia. The second time absolutely pissing in a chase of 165. They ended up with 168 and captaining Australia for the first time. T20 cricket he made 15 in the third match clean swept the series I mean it, it, it is the white ball game for Australia that has really turned around Marsh's career going back to the T20 World Cup of 2021 but you don't get much better weeks than this as an international cricketer feels like it's meant to be him becoming the the white ball captain right now at, at this stage of the cycle getting this opportunity initially at least with the T20 side then you know I know he won't captain the one day team at the World Cup unless there's a further injury to Patrick Cummins but you know it, it's almost certain that he will after the World Cup and that will be a, a, a really interesting stage of this Australian white ball and their development and and, you know I said before about um, the lure of the Olympic Games keeping guys keep playing longer what about the lure of playing under Mitch Marsh I reckon for a few of them who are thinking about maybe going full-time on the circuit that being in a Mitch Marsh led Australian team could keep them going for a couple of more years which is a good thing and they're they're blending that experience with uh, with youth too what a perfect trip for Australia with all the new players coming through Um, Tanvir Sanger taking four for 31 in his first game Spencer Johnson picking up a couple of wickets Nathan Ellis who's not 
new to the setup, but still a, a relatively junior player taking three for 25 in the second game. Jason Berendorf back in the mix as a left arm option, you know, in that post dark world taking two. Sean Abbott, everything he touches turns to gold at the moment in domestic cricket, and so it is for Australia. Um, three for 22 from four on his return to the side. And then someone like Marcus Stoinis, who, who's blown a little bit hot and cold for Australia in the last couple of years, did it with the ball, took three wickets opening in the first game and did it with the bat, chasing 191 in the third T20 international, 37 not out from 21 to ice it. You know, Travis Head, who wasn't a fixture in the first two games, walks out and makes 91 from 48 in that big chase in the third game to you know to seal the clean mm-hmm. sweep. Josh Inglis plays a role, 42 from 22. I mean, Tim David plays a role in the first game, 64 from 28. Aaron Hardy on his first Australian trip plays a role in the first game. Like Matthew Short from Victoria, who's getting a chance for Australia for the first time as well, made 66 from 30 in the second international. Mm. So, like, there is every box checked, as far as I can see, unless I'm missing something here. This feels like maybe, like, the best T20 series Australia have ever enjoyed being in South Africa, you know, an opposition that in the past has proven challenging Mm -hmm. for them. Uh, And it's the established guys, it's the new guys. And I know they're not playing a World Cup until June, July next year and a lot of water will go Mm. under the bridge, a 50-over World Cup and so on. But the the building blocks are there for for Australia to go on and and have a serious tilt at that tournament in America and in uh, the West Indies next year. And it is interesting that Matthew Short's opening the batting there as well. So, you know, the, the plan that we've heard for the time being is to have Steve Smith do that job. Um, and David Warner wants to go through until that T20 World Cup. But they're looking at that option as well of, of having that backup of short being able yep. to do that damage at the top of the order. And, yeah, I think I think having innings come off for Tim David is important as well. You know, we saw glimpses of it during that last T20 World Cup, but there was always that sense that in the way that you and, and Cam Pontemi talked about David Milan in the England setup, there's that sense that certain players are always a lot closer to the edge than others, they have to perform a lot more consistently than others to be able to stay in the team. And and as much as everybody talks up, oh, isn't it great that Tim David had a, an unconventional path to the Australian team and so on? I still think that gets you, that buys you less rope um, from selectors when you've got that, right. when yeah. you've got an unconventional path in or an unconventional technique or anything about you that could be criticised, then you you are afforded fewer failures. Yeah, yeah, that all that all lines up, and look, uh, they want Tim David to be a, a, a big player in this T Twenty side. There's no doubt, but you're right that there is a there is a, a shorter leash for him. Remembering that he's not nationally contracted either, and it's probably in his interest not to be nationally contracted. By the way, it, yeah. it provides him the freedom to play in every competition without needing to work within the the more stringent structure that a an Australian deal would bring. But yeah, that precedes the five game one-day series, I'm pretty sure it is, with South Africa, which starts in a couple of days. So it felt like the T20 was... The, the T20 series was was like... It didn't have a huge amount riding on it, but because it's gone so well, they take mm. that... They build on that going into the one-dayers, which have a bit more riding on it because, of course, the, the World Cup is uh, less than a month away. Yeah, well, hopefully it made South Africa a bit of coin as well because um, they need it and Australia owe them yeah. a few favours in that regard. All right, before the end of the segment, let us play a little bit of... Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge, it's the game that we play with people who listen to this show who like 
the reverse quiz format. They like to test us out. They do it in this way. They fund the show by sending through contributions that are not normal round numbers. They're very specific numbers. The numbers relate to cricket in some way. And we have to figure out what it means. Luke Reynolds, uh, who long-time listeners of the show will recognise from the Pombonate Cricket Club special that we recorded... When was that? December? Was that... It was last last November. It was the day after the, it was the, day after the T20 World Cup final. Mm. We drove down there. That's right. So we're, we're going back to... November. Oh, was that... Yeah, October. November last year. And the, the long and rich history of the Pombonate Cricket Club in Western Victoria... Luke sent through $18.81 and I thought, slam dunk, that's got to mean 1881 the year. It's got to mean when the Pompanet Cricket Club was founded, but it was not. It was founded in 1883. Hmm. So I don't specifically have the answer, the correct one for this, Luke, so you can send us a, a clue and we'll come back to it. But what I do have is I started reading some newspapers from Camperdown, which is just down the road in from Pompanet, from 1881 because that is a thing that the magic of newspaper archives will allow you to do. And I found, I don't know if it's the earliest mention, but it must be a very early mention of Pombonit. Uh, Richard Lucas's application for a licence of three acres in Pombonit has been granted. Uh, Crown grants have been issued to Catherine Cameron at Warndoo and Donald Mackenzie at Lismore. So that's, you know, well, it was great news there for Richard Lucas um, uh, and... Uh, what he did with those three acres, I don't know. Is the Lucas family still a part of life in Pombonite? You can let me know that, Luke, as you dial in. But what I did find, and the reason that I, that I thought this was worth bringing up, is that right next to this piece was a cricket report in the paper. I mean, in fact, right next to this piece was a, a, an article about a, a, an attempted shotgun shooting between two station hands at Mortlake. One fellow managed to fire off three shells and, and still didn't manage to finish off the other one. So obviously wasn't such a crack shot. But next to that is is this this cricket report, Adam, which is Camperdown versus Mortlake. Mortlake all out for 36. They fight back to restrict Camperdown to 50 and then they get bowled out for 21, setting them eight to win. But um, I, I enjoyed <laughs> reading this report so much that I thought I'd share a little bit of it with people listening to this show. Camperdown versus Mortlake. After an interval of three seasons, matches between the above cricket clubs were resumed on Saturday night. In the face of the last match played at Camperdown, when Mortlake were defeated by 300 runs, it was originally intended that only second 11 players should be sent to Mortlake. But after taking the condition of the ground into consideration, the team was strengthened by five first 11 players. So, I mean, first up, Camperdown just alpha dogging Mortlake completely. We don't even need to send the firsts to play you. You know, we'll just we'll just wander up and smash you. I mean, borne out partly by the scorecard, but but not entirely. The local team says the report, with one exception, made a very poor show with the bat. And although the match was won easily by eight wickets, the state of the game during the first part of the day was very close and interesting. The Mortlake men were first sent to the wickets and before the last wicket fell had made 36 which I think we can agree is not a lot of runs, no matter what era it is. Hinchcliffe contributed nine, made up by three good hits. Isn't that great when you can get mentioned in the paper for playing three good shots? I think I've played against Mortlake. Mm. Um, that, that rings a bell. When I, when I was playing for Nestles, the, um, the factory at the Reed Oval in Warrnambool, oh, yeah. my season, or my half a season, I think it worked out to be in 2000, 2001, so the second half of that summer when... Uh, the family moved to Warrnambool and I was playing down there. I reckon we played against Mortlake away. It rings a bell. That would have been in a Warrnambool comp. So it doesn't I, – I, 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 
I guess they must have expanded the the footprint of the uh, well. It looks like if they were playing Camperdown, um, Camperdown or in a different competition, but still, right. it, it jumps out at me. The other thing I wanted to note is that Luke Reynolds was a big fan of the the the, um, the book club episode that we dropped into the feed on Friday. Sent oh, me a message, so uh, I did read that, Luke. And that, if you are not familiar, and um, we now have a book club on the Final Word feed, which we will add to from time to time, maybe about once a month. That's the goal. Where a, a cricket book that Jeff or I have read, which may have no relevance whatsoever to the current media cycle, it could be a book from years ago, it could be a book mm-hmm. that's not pertinent to international cricket in the slightest, like the book that we had the other day from Tom Hicks is about as far away as relevant to international cricket at the moment as you can get, but it was still very much worth doing. And I'm glad that uh, Luke and others enjoyed that and we will do more of it soon. Well, uh, you'll be pleased to know that Alan of Camperdown took four wickets in his second over, eight of the Mortlake players altogether falling to him for 15 (laughs) runs, but then they fought back. The Camperdown team commenced their innings very badly. The first eight wickets fell for 32, Um, and so they thought they had them, the Mortlake crew, but but unfortunately able to get up to 50, a big lead of 14 runs on the first innings, and then Mortlake fell to pieces the second time around, all out for 21. Hiscock bowled so well that six wickets only cost 18 runs before Four the Mortlake men in their second innings were again all at sea, says the report. I love the writing style of this particular era. Alan, who delivered in this inning seven overs and six maidens for eight wickets and three runs. So he's taken eight for 15 in the first innings and eight for three in the second innings. This fella named Alan, whose last name, whose first name we we do not have. Uh, in each innings of the losing team, the Yorkers played great havoc. No less than a dozen duck eggs appearing. The visiting team required eight runs to win the match, and Henry and Dowling were disposed of before these were obtained. The pitch upon which not a blade of grass could be seen played better than was expected. Although good cricket was altogether out of the question. <laughs> love it, love so it. So uh, uh, Yes, it's uh, during the week at that aforementioned Surrey-Warwickshire game that I was working on, Andrew Sampson was part of the commentary team as well and ran through with me the day where Surrey beat Warwickshire in one day. That happened in 1953, 70 years ago. And just a little nugget uh, or or a little Easter egg, if you like, for story time that we're going to do next weekend. We've spoken a lot about old cricketers recently on story time. Watch this space. There's a story, a developer story in Sri Lanka at the moment. Not going to tell you any more. I'm going to save it for story time. Okay. But Andrew Sampson is all over this and it's going to make you very happy. Okay. All right. I look forward to finding out more. <laughs> if you want to send us a nerd pledge, go to patreon.com slash the final word. That's how we keep this show running and, and build the final word community. There's lots of stuff to get involved with on Patreon and the chat page attached to that and all the rest of it. Let's take our first break and then There'll be lots of cricket to round up. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. It is The Final Word, Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins, and we need to start this segment with Sri Lanka knocking off England 
in the second women's T20, the series that they're currently playing, that will have one game to play. And I think it's important to start here because we talked last week, was it, about just how difficult it would be and just how unlikely it would be for this Sri Lankan team to be able to beat England. And what we said at the time was, if it happens, it's going to take a massive effort from Chamari Adapatu. That's exactly what happened. With the ball first, um, that important early wicket that she took with the the uh, the one that, that turned in through the gate and then with the bat in the run chase. I think I said something uh, a couple of weeks ago, like they could play 20 times and Sri Lanka would win one of them. Well, uh, here it is. This is the 13th time they've played in T20s and the first time that Sri Lanka have won. So you can kind of see where that, that lines up. And look, there'll be scrutiny on England for this, but let's celebrate what Sri Lanka have been able to achieve. That first T20 down at Hove was a horrible, sorry, wet affair where, you know, England clouted 186 for four in 17 overs with, you know, Capsie making a brisk half century, Danny White doing what Danny White always seemingly does. And, you know, Sri Lanka not getting close to their d- Duckworth Lewis target because they lost wickets and you know the whole story was about Mahika Goa who we've spoken about a lot on the show um, her getting her first international wicket for England of course getting plenty for the UAE but picking up Chamari Atapatu you know as her first England wicket that's what all the headlines are even if they were dreadful conditions to bowl in um, she wasn't hitting the radar as high as I think she would if it were dry but, um, you know, it was teeming down with rain. I can imagine nothing worse mm. than, you know, the scrutiny of playing on television for England for the first time and doing so in the in the pouring rain. But she got through that test. And, you know, I don't think anybody saw coming that Sri Lanka would go on to bowl out England in 18 overs for 104. I mean, Charlie Dean making 34 down at number eight saved their bacon to an extent. They were 66 for eight at one stage. But that it was delaying the inevitable from there with Sri Lanka winning inside 14 overs by eight wickets mm. with um, Atapatu um, 55 from, from 31. And it, yeah, I suppose it does to an extent highlight that England decided to go into the series without um, Sophia Dunkley. Sophie Eccleston is injured anyway, so it's a moot point. And Nat Siver, uh, who's not playing in this series either. So it, it does highlight who isn't there for England but I mean Mm. that shouldn't be a problem for England they've got the depth and the professional structure that it it needn't be an issue that they're turning out the side they are that the bigger concern is that against the spinning ball they have a problem and we saw this 12 months ago against India in a one-day series at the end of the summer that India were able to sort of swamp England with their spinners and and so it proves here Mm. again so um, as Hypercost noted on social media, it's a it's a longer term trend line as well. Um, England have been successful yep. in five separate World Cups across the years, and none of them have been in the subcontinent. So you know there there is something to note there on the way through. I think it's instructive as well that it's at Chelmsford um, in Essex because that's the ground that England women were trying to pump up as being their fortress, quote unquote. You know, there there was this sort of um, obsession with with the England men with Edgebaston and then the women with Chelmsford um, based on, you know, decent records but not like unbeaten for 30 years kind of records at those grounds. Uh, and then, I mean, Sri Lanka beat them in the style that Sri Lanka win games, which is which is take you to the mat and choke hold you with spin in the first innings, keep it to a modest total um, and keep it to something that they can chase because their batting's always been the weaker suit. But it's when they've got when, – when the spinners swarm you um, and, and it's it's those spinners that we've seen operating for so long like Inoka Ranawira and Prabhadani who are so adept at using surfaces. If, this, if, if there's a slow surface, they can make scoring difficult and Adapatu chipping in like we mentioned. But then also Adapatu killing the chase. So, yes, it's only 110, but 
that's the sort of score that Sri Lanka could comfortably fail to make and have done plenty of times. Adapatu comes out 55 of 31 balls, mows some big hits over the leg side and, and just takes enough of a chunk out of it that basically the chase is done uh, by the time she's out. Yeah, senior players like Atapatsu and Prabhadani, the left arm seamer, like they've been around forever, right? And to have success like this, I know they beat England in a one-day international at the World Cup in 2013 at Mumbai, which actually cost England pretty badly. It it meant they couldn't make the final of that World Cup with results working against them. But, you know, the England team, you zoom out a little bit from this, they they did so well to, to tie the women's ashes and, um, level at having won the, the T20s and the one days against Australia. So this will serve as something of a reality check. But equally, I, I don't think that it needs to be kind of, you know, um, a sort of a, a gnashing of teeth either. You're allowed to lose games of cricket. You're allowed to be beaten and bowled out. That that happens. There's clearly something going on with England and spin, but it doesn't mean that, you know, the whole program's stuffed or anything like that. One criticism that I think's worth highlighting, and, and I think it's a fair one, is that Izzy Wong is out of sorts at the moment with her run-up. She bowled a number of front foot no balls. Her rhythm's not there. Her run-up's gone. I, I'm not sure whether subjecting her to playing an international game when she's not right is the correct way to be handling a very gifted, talented bowler with a very, very high ceiling. That's why bowlers like Izzy Wong and Lauren Filer and now Mahika Gore are getting picked is because their ceiling is tremendously high and you need to nurture that talent carefully. And I don't know whether Wong's been served particularly well by playing right now when there's something not right, which was visible during the 100 as well. I went back and watched some of her clips from the 100. It's not in isolation that she's struggling here and she's got so much time on her side. I think she just turned 21 a couple of months ago uh, and she's a smart, sort of savvy uh, uh, person outside of cricket as well. So she'll get it right. But um, yeah, the glare of um, an international, especially when they had no runs to to defend either, she was on a, a little bit of a hiding to nothing. Uh, England and New Zealand in the men's series, not much point going into detail there because you can listen to the daily shows and get all the detail that you want. Anything that you want to touch on there before we move on? Oh, only that it was um, a pretty gutsy effort from New Zealand after after their batting backfired spectacularly twice in a row to, to come out and make 200 plus in the third game of that series, the, the T20s that is. So I haven't had a chance to, to get on top of what happened tonight at Knotts, but you know, to play the way they did at Birmingham uh, to get back in the series, having been, um, you know, having been bossed in Durham and having been annihilated in Manchester, that you know, I think that's a that's a noteworthy thing on the way through for them. That you know, they'll they'll improve from there. And remember that they, I said this on the Daily Show, they they had a a really poor 2019 to the point where the World Cup started. And from there, they were great. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's the same when we get to India with, you know, New Zealand who are so battle-hardened and a group of players that have been to, uh, you know, the pointy end of so many World Cups that they end up doing the same, you know, at a tournament that no one's talking about them winning. uh, But, you know, we seldom do. So I I don't want to draw too much of a through line between their win at Edgbaston and going on to maybe win the World Cup later this year, simply noting that it takes a bold pundit to ride off New Zealand entirely in in these forms of the game. Well, I've just checked the score and New Zealand have won the fourth T20 as well. So they've tied up the series. They chased 175 uh, and, well, England made 175 and New Zealand got past it. um, So they've put together a good effort in the fourth game there. The Asia Cup is 
Pretty well underway. Pakistan smashed up Nepal first up. Barbara Azam made 151. Shadab Khan four for. Pakistan made over 300. Bowled out Nepal for 104. Sri Lanka kept Bangladesh for 164, although Shanto, one of our Shanto. emerging favourites, made 89. Um, so Sri Lanka chased that easily. India and Pakistan set up an absolute belter mm. that then got rained off. So Shaheen Shah Afridi, four for 35, straight through Rohit Sharma, straight through Virat Kohli early on. India are four for 30-odd. And then Ishan Kishan and Hardik Pandya, both make scores in the 80s, get India up to 266 and then it's rained off. Deeply disappointing because, I mean, we've just seen some absolute cracking contests between those two on the occasions when they're allowed to play. It could be a, a great thing for Pakistan. They didn't need to chase it, right? So mm. um, uh, they, they, they will feel as though they were in a, such a strong position with Shaheen uh, taking four for 35 and, yeah, as you say, knocking over Rohit, then having Coley chopping on. I love the little bit of colour and movement that Star Sports put up a package of India's power play when they lost three wickets to Pakistan and they didn't show any of the wickets, which kind of goes <laughs> to uh, the type of coverage we can, I don't know. I was going to draw a through line between that and what we can expect from the World Cup, but of course the ICC TV done at arm's length from um, the BCCI mm -hmm. and so on. But but yeah, it, it was a it was interesting that... Um, that, that Pakistan seem not to fear India right now. They came so close to beating them at the T20 World Cup last year. Mm. They flogged them at the T20 World Cup a year before that. So I think that this group game at the World Cup when they play each other, it's about halfway through the tournament. Is that right, Jeff? They have their group game about um, halfway yeah. through at Ahmedabad. Um, Ahmedabad. Ahmedabad, I think it is. Mm -hmm. That's where they're playing yes. each other. Uh, after um, much discussion um, and and potential other venues and so on, it is in theory still going ahead there, although who, yeah. knows? who knows? Might move three days out like it did well, last right. time. That's right. Yeah, who knows? This World Cup might be played on the moon. Um, you know, with a you know with a with a purple ball. Um, no, that's not true because it's in India. It'll be played in India. But you know, my point. Well, the last stands. World Cup in India was played in the UAE. True. Other games. Uh, Bangladesh uh, made three hundred and thirty-four for five against Afghanistan. Beat them comfortably. Shanto century. How about this? Mahdi Hassan, my boy. Made 112, opening. So he's gone full circle. Love this. He's been most of his career at seven, hasn't he? <laughs> well, he's spent a lot of his time down at 10. But, yeah, he's a good all-round prospect, Mahdi Hassan. Uh, Afghanistan, um, yeah, were held to 245. Tashkan Ahmed, another favourite of mine. I've been to his house in Dhaka. Took four for 44. <laughs> Nepal against India. The, yeah, Nepal made 230 against India with their um, wicketkeeper opener, Asif Sheikh making 59. That was a proper Indian attack, you know, mm. like Shami, Siraj, Pandya, Takur, Jadeja, Kuldeep Yadav. India got there easily. Um, on Duckworth Lewis, they chased 147 in 20 overs with um, Rohit Sharma, um, 74 not out, Shubham Gill, 67 not out. But, you know, that, that's a that's a noteworthy thing for Nepal using this tournament to take another step. Yep. And the off-field story is that they're so worried about the rain in Colombo that they're considering moving the entire Super 4 stage to Dambulla. Um, which is the ground I went to to watch uh, Tilakaratna Dilshan's final one day international in 2016. Mm. And I've never been more fearful for my safety at a cricket venue because, you know, the, the grandstand where the press box was in, the only real major grandstand there at Dambulla, they just threw the gates open and every step had six people standing on it. And they um, had 35,000 people was the official attendance for a ground that's meant to hold 19,000, many of whom were sitting in the trees to watch Dilshan bat one last time. And there was another one day there two days later. That was David Warner's first one day of captaining Australia, by the way. 
And there was another one day, the third one day of the series was set to be played there two days later. And to control the amount of people who are in there, they simply cut down the trees so people couldn't climb them anymore, um, which is a, 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 a favourite anecdote of mine from touring Sri Lanka way back when. But that's the ground they're looking at if they think the rains in Colombo are going to be too penetrative uh, for the Super Fours when they move into that later in the week. India have put their World Cup squad out too, which is interesting halfway through the Asia Cup. So you, you can can't do anything further to get your spot unless there's an injury replacement. So Kale Rahul's yep. back, which means Sanju Sampson's out. Jasper Bumra is back after the West Indies games. Kuldeep Yadav will be the main spinner with, uh, with because, because Chahal won't be there. Ashwin won't be there. So interesting um, selections with the squeeze there. I, I think... We'll, we'll go into the squads in detail once all the squads come out, which should yeah. happen in the next week or two, and, and we can spend a portion of the show looking at, at all of them, but some interesting moves there from India. I just thought I'd have Ashwin in the squad. I mean, I don't really know who for, because, um, you know, other than the big KL Rahul news, right, the fact that he's won his um, race against time, the interesting part for New Zealand is Will, Will Kane Williamson. I've watched him do lots of fitness work in the two T20s I was covering last week. So it's unclear whether Williamson will get to the start line, but KL Rahul has. So unlucky for Sandrew Sampson. But yeah, I would have had Ashwin there. I mean, you were there at the MCG last year for the T20 World Cup. You're still in that side. His experience in India on track sort of bound mm. to turn. Yeah, my sense is that you'd want him there, but not to be. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense, particularly from the the, the pro Ashwin ramparts. That, that, you know, but I think we just love watching him play, and so it's disappointing every time he's not yeah. going to play. But um, anyway, we'll run through that in more detail. Uh, New Zealand A smashed Australia A in a, mm. the first four day game, which was interesting. Bowled them out for 147 on the final day. So we spoke about this last week when New Zealand had made 147, Australia were 263. New Zealand come back and make 468 and then bowl out Australia for 127 and win that one. They're, they're halfway through their second four-day game in Mackay. New Zealand have made 277 uh, with Mitchell Perry, the ultimate collection uh, of combination of names for Australian cricket. Mitchell Perry, four for 41. Liam Hatcher, four for 77. Um, and Australia A just about reached parity at 275 after being 150 for seven. Thanks to Josh Ryan Philippi, Cruel Intentions made a ton. <laughs> Um, and Ben Dwarshus made 50 down the order to, to get them up level. New Zealand have just started the second innings at Stumps on the second day. And New Zealand Cricket have named a new CEO who I don't know much about. Do you? I, I do a little bit. So Scott Winnick, Winnink, it's a hard name to pronounce. He was the boss or the chairman rather of the New Zealand Players Association. So, you know, he comes from that bent but he has this private sector background as well. He studied at Oxford, played cricket at Oxford, got a blue there, but also played first-class cricket in Wellington. And, yeah, so I guess he's got experience on both sides of the ball when it comes to cricket administration and sports administration. But, yeah, pretty important time for New Zealand cricket, right? Like, they're going to need a strong chief executive. Not that there's a time for a weak one, but especially now with the with the palaver around South Africa and all that bullshit about what team they might send uh, next year. Uh, and with New Zealand men clearly on the white ball hunt for contracts, we've already seen that with Trent Bolton, the mm. added complexity uh, that that will feed into all of this from a, a boardroom, you know, executive level decision-making side of things. Um, so, you yeah, know, wish him well. It's not going to be an easy gig, but yeah, this is the, 
the kind of gig that some administrators relish when the times are tough. And we all know with the way that international cricket's moving at the moment that anyone that moves into those roles are, are going to have to, in order to argue their own corner, push back pretty hard against India. Um, and how New Zealand go about executing that will be fascinating to watch as it is for everyone else in the, well, I was going to say the the small seven. I think that's a term that Neil Manthorpe uses when referring to the big three. The reality is in terms of full members, it's the big one and the small 11. Um, so uh, all the smaller 11. So um, more power to Scott Weenink, uh, the new chief executive of uh, of New Zealand cricket after the, you know, the previous man who held that role did so for 12 years. The Big Bash draft happened during the week as well for the men's and women's uh, briefly on this. Very England heavy. Um, interesting the way that teams went about picking their players. Um, there was a little bit of tactical back and forth in the men's draft because I think it was the Stars who tried to draft Rashid Khan first up and then, but Adelaide had the retention pick because he's played for them several seasons previously. So they played that card and kept Rashid Khan. But I mean, there are so many England players getting picked across both of these sides. So Adelaide picked up Jamie Overton and Adam Hose, Harry Brooks going to the Melbourne Stars, Tom Curran, James Vince and Rayan Ahmed to the Sixers, Chris Jordan and Sam Hain to the Hurricanes, Alex Hales to Sydney Thunder, Sam Billings to Brisbane Heat, um, Zach Crawley and Laurie Evans to the Scorchers. The only team that didn't go at least one England player were the Renegades because they're Renegades. They do things differently. Quinton de Kock and Mujiba Rahman, the Afghan spinner, are the two overseas players going there. Um, and quite a few Pakistan players coming through as well. So Harris Ralph for the Melbourne Stars. Um, Zaman Khan will go to Sydney Thunder as well. Uh, it's, it's interesting that there are leagues where the Pakistani players don't get much of a run for some reason um, and, and the Big Bash does seem to be one of the T20 leagues where you can get picked up uh, Usama Mir going to the Melbourne Stars as well. Yeah, the, the other Englishman you missed there for the Brisbane Heat is tall Paul Walter, all six foot six of him heading to a Gabba near you. So I don't think anyone expected Paul Walter a couple of years ago to be making a a, a splash in, in T20 cricket to the extent to which he'd be a, a, a sort of highly prized pick in the... Uh, in the overseas blast, blast, overseas big bash draft, but here we are. <laughs> Not much to add, really, other than the fact that it does simply, uh, well, highlight the extent that England's white ball program is respected around the T20 world and why these players are, are picked up so readily at the very start of, uh, of competitions, be it those with drafts or, or those who just open up the checkbook. There, there are so many England players who, who now have established themselves as game-changing batters especially, but bowlers too. I mean, the very fact that Chris Jordan, uh, deep into his, um, his career, is still going as pick number four there to the Hurricanes, that stands out to me. And, and Tom Curran as well, who um, was the player of the... The hundred final a couple of weeks ago with bat and ball, you know, good option for Sydney Sixers, who he's of course been there for a long time now. He's a retention pick, but still, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting part of his career. And and similar in the women's draft as well as so Alice Capsey and Maya Bouchier, the two players going to the Stars, both from England, um, Heather Knight and Lauren Bell going to Sydney Thunder with Marisan Cap from South Africa, Danny Wyatt going to Perth with Sophie Devine from New Zealand who's been leading that side recently and she'll be back doing that job again. Bryony Smith, the England player to the Hurricanes with Shabnam Ishmael 
Um, Bess Heath was a curious yep. pick for me for Brisbane Heat with Amelia Kerr from New Zealand. Um, so most of those teams, Danny Gibson as well, going to the Strikers with Laura Woolvart, who the, um, the the Big Bash social media said was from England, Laura Woolvart. She's not. She's from South Africa. But uh, so, yeah, only a couple of teams, again, who, who didn't pick English players with the Renegades picking Hayley Matthews and Harman Preet Kaur. So that'll be interesting. A couple of pretty <laughs> feisty characters there. And and the Sixers got Chloe Tryon from South Africa and Jess Kerr from New Zealand. I'm glad to see Jess Kerr get a go as well, her three-metre in-swingers. They're not the fastest, but by God, they move a long way through the air and we've seen her do some good work. Starting to move out from the shadow of her younger sister, Amelia, who's always had the headlines. Yeah, there are all those women who have these monstrous in-swingers and Jess Kerr, one of the very best, as you point out there. She had a good uh, fair break tournament earlier this year as well. Uh, and yeah, the, the, the Bess Heath story is an interesting one, given that she was kind of on the way up. She remains on the way up, but she'll be making her England debut this week against Sri Lanka, all things being equal, in the one-dayers when they start. Um, and yeah, she she has done her time in the regional setup, and uh, we know that's where England selectors pay most attention to what they do in their regions. And um, on the back of that, they've been clearly scouting well because they know she's a player on the rise and also someone who could keep well to Amelia Kerr as well if they choose to use her as a wicketkeeper. Got excellent gloves. Amelia Kerr is not easy to keep to because she spins at a mile. So that might be a bit of a package deal when they, they thought about getting a, a spinner, well, an all-rounder, but a spinner like Amelia Kerr having a, a wicketkeeper as competent as Bess Heath if they want to go down that path. So that's where we're at with the drafts. Uh, Just to close out the second section, a Scotland schools team won at Lords the under-15 boys T20 winners in the ECB competition for 2023 has been taken out by none other than Carlton Cricket Club in Edinburgh. Go to the Blues, I assume. A reminder of, of what you were talking about in the Scotland episode last week, that there is a an overall rise of the game in Scotland and in Carlton, who are playing finals this weekend. Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, Scotland cricket. That's in, that's in the a- AFL, absolutely if you worry chuffed about, about this that um, that they've got a team that it's the first time they've had a team like that go to Lords then to win the tournament. The under fifteen boys at Carlton from Edinburgh. So yeah, and and um, I'm I'm sort of quite proud of that yep, we put together a couple of weeks ago about where Scottish cricket's at. So um, uh, if you want to learn more, it's about. I don't know, five or six episodes back in the feed where I spoke to the, the interim chief executive, a um, couple of players and, and the head of high performance about all the on-field goings-on, but also what's been happening off the field as well in relation to the um, racism saga, which has blown through there in the last couple of years. And Carlton Football Club playing Sydney on Friday night. If you're, if you're keen to follow <laughs> that one, you can get in the – on the Final Word chat page, there is a dedicated football code, Australian football codes page called the Barassi Line. So all of the rugby league people, the rugby union people, the Australian rules football people, they all have to get together if they want to chat. It's a, we're, we're, we're making bonds across divides. All right, let's take a last break, and after that we'll be talking to Tanya Aldred. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. 
The final word, Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. Tanya Aldred is someone who's been specifically following cricket's relationship with sustainability, with environmentalism um, and looking at the broader effects of climate change, how that's likely to affect the game and also how the game can affect it in turn. And there have been big developments during the week at Warwickshire who run the ground at Edgebaston. So they've already had a pledge to be carbon neutral by 2030 and they're working towards that. But they had this go green round, this game that we mentioned off the top of the show, where they've instituted a lot of things, improved recycling, uh, more efficient lighting and particularly looking at the catering. I think this is an interesting one by switching out the default from being everything being a meat-based dish, which I think is uh, that's something that hasn't been questioned a whole lot, which isn't to say that everyone has to be vegetarian. It's just that every meal doesn't have to by default be based on meat because it's a much more carbon-intensive product to produce for the most part than the alternatives. Yeah, that, that red meat thing jumped out at me as well. And look, and, and Tanya and I go into this in the chat, it's not about clubs or... or or, or boards or grounds solving climate change. It's more about no. the, it's about them providing a signal to the people mm. that they communicate with that if they're doing things better, then, then we all can as well and we can all play our part and reminding everyone where possible the extent to which cricket's going to be absolutely clobbered by the climate crisis. And, yeah, we like to get Tanya on, as I mentioned off the top of the interview, you know, about once a year because she's got her finger on the pulse on these matters. So yeah, it, it did align nicely with what was going on at Edgbaston over the weekend. And Tanya wanted me to mention that after we completed that interview, which we recorded late last week when I was in Manchester. Well, when in Manchester, best to catch up with Tanya Aldred, who is the foremost cricket writing authority on all things climate change and the climate crisis. Uh, We've uh, had you on the show a number of times in the past to talk about this and we've been meaning to do so again. Uh, So first of all, welcome back to The Final Word. Thanks, Adam. It's again been a a busy week in Australian politics around uh, climate policy where the usual suspects are are duking it out. Your interest in this extends well beyond the sort of media cycle you're working on this 12 months a year, initially with the next test, Mm. um, which, well, maybe you can explain what that is in the context of trying to bring greater awareness in the cricket community to what the climate crisis means and will mean into the future? Well, we're a sort of fledgling organisation that kind of grew out of a Twitter feed that I ran and also Bristol Dodos, who are a sort of cricket club based in Bristol who are trying to bring light to the climate crisis, I guess. Mm. So we've kind of come together and set up a website and we had a launch date in at Cheltenham, where it rained nearly every day, actually, for a <laughs> Gloucestershire match. And we are supposed to be doing some kind of if I said climate crisis training, that doesn't sound very exciting, but with the Gloucestershire team at the end of the season. So I guess we're trying... I mean, if I said we were trying to be surface against sewage, we're a very, very... a tiny microcosm of trying to be surface against sewage within cricket and kind of, I suppose, bringing awareness of the climate crisis and trying to be somewhere where people could come together and try and, I suppose, look for hope, because I think there's a lot you can feel very depressed about the whole thing and also have some kind of tangible solution so we're hoping to provide both of those things and one other thing actually which i i read this week which which i thought was quite interesting was that actually anger is the most kind the biggest driver of causing people to take action now with the climate crisis and not that i want people to come 
with to us feeling angry but i think that might be something that drives people towards sites like ours i guess it stands to reason i remember when we first spoke about this on the podcast at least you made reference to the fact that you've got three children and you genuinely despair about what the planet will look like for them when they you know reach their, their 30s and 40s and, and so on and, and you know I guess to an extent so it is for me now with a couple of kids since yeah. you, it's hard not to run it through that filter and you know we'll zoom in and zoom out in this conversation but at that macro level the idea that we're living on a planet which is warming at a rate which is going to make the, the lived experience of our kids very different to, to what we've experienced growing up. Exactly I think uh, it's not to say people who aren't parents don't care but I think it does flick a switch in your head if you weren't engaged before and I just yeah it just feels so sorrowful for for young kids really and just the the environment that we grew up with we saw was normal and felt fairly stable that's just not going to be there for them Mm. and I also think they this is off topic really but they get quite demonized so I was reading something about the the Leeds festival this year and the fact that loads of tents had been left afterwards and it was a complete dumping ground now I think that's awful no one should be just dumping their stuff at the festival but you think that's kind of teenagers leaving one tent behind and some rubbish but how, what does that compare to political leaders deciding to invest further in fossil fuels deciding to pollute the waterways all that kind of stuff so yeah it was just something that that occurred to me and into your remit of cricket and policymakers within the sport that, that we cover and the, and the corner of the the, the climate crisis that, that you're most engaged with in the last 12 months there's been a lot going on now you get a chance to to catalogue all of the activity or inactivity in the Wisden Almanac annually which is a great thing that's been going for I guess five or six editions of, of the good book now but in the most recent edition of it you're able to capture the ICC's decision to get into bed with Aramco who we've, we've talking about spoken about rather a lot on the podcast but your uh, your perspective on on the ICC choosing to move in that direction with such a um, with such a partner um, when that what sort of signal that sends I suppose to it, its members and, and the rest of the cricketing community I think it's pretty depressing they um you know I'm sure there were lots of people out there who could have sponsored them perhaps not to quite the same large amount of money that they got from Aramco but around the world people are choosing to remove their sponsorship in in cultural things like museums and stuff then people are deciding not to use fossil fuel advertising or fossil fuel sponsorship anymore and obviously fossil fuel companies are looking for where else they can go and sport is just providing an open book for them Mm. you know you look I was watching a Netflix thing with my son the other day and uh, JP Morgan Chase, who we might be talking about later, they were sponsoring the US Open. If you look at motor racing, you look at Tour de France, there's fossil fuel sponsorship everywhere. And unfortunately, cricket also has taken the dirty cash. I know they had the recycling facilities, which you saw, the plastic bottle recycling facilities. (laughs) But um, yeah, I mean, cricket's got, countries you know many of the cricket playing countries in the ICC are those most badly affected by climate change and yet they don't seem to put two and two together well this is it isn't it like and the hit for six report was the the trigger for us first having the conversation with you you know back in 19 as I said before pre-pandemic which I think is an interesting yeah. <laughs> interesting part of this as well that you know we, we sort of stopped talking about climate change for, for a couple of years there when, when the world came to a halt more or less but in that it went through in, in excruciating detail just how difficult cricket will be to be played in major parts of the of the world I mean 
my own experience of being in India this year and and being in Delhi for a week and how ill I was and how it's impossible to divorce that from how polluted it was when we were there. But that's just like you know one vignette. Like there, there are, as you know and as you've explained before, parts of the cricketing world which will never be the same unless there's some way to, to turn the tide. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's places where, you know, it's just far too dangerous to play because the wet bulb temperature is too high and that means that, I mean, that's dangerous for us just walking around. It's definitely too dangerous to play cricket. And then you're talking about air pollution, um, so sports. So obviously air pollution affects all of us, but it would particularly affect children and older people and ill people and then sports people because they are running around and inhaling and exhaling obviously much more. So I suppose heat and air pollution would be the two kind of obvious ones. And then obviously cricket is affected by, by other things that might not affect the players so so personally. So we've got hurricanes in the West Indies, you've yep. got floods in India and Pakistan and floods even here in the UK. And the wildfires in Australia as well, obviously. Sure. I mean, there's there's something in each country, isn't there? And, yeah. You could um, do a little tick list. <laughs> sure. Right, right. But, but uh, being in the UK where we won't be affected... Well, in in the long run, sure, but not in the short term. It it disregards the fact that there are millions, um, hundreds of millions of people who are living in full member nations, to use that as a a benchmark, whose lives will be dramatically affected in the Indian subcontinent, for example, in in ways that will make the the cricket part of this seem small fry. Exactly. I mean, I I saw something. So Pakistan, for example, is, if I read this properly, is fifth amongst the world's most climate affected countries mm. of all the countries in the world mm. and yeah a major player in in the cricket world and yet I, I i don't i don't i find i i just struggle to understand how you can in cricket authorities can in good faith sign such a big deal with aramco so so that's the that's the um the doomsday scenario or, or the, the reality of, of where uh, things are going from a public policy perspective then there's the i guess the 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 way in which people within cricket can combat this and can move the conversation forward mm. what we've seen an uptick in in the last two years especially is civil disobedience not just in cricket but around the world but cricket's been part of that the just yeah. stop oil protest on the first day of the lord's ashes test stands out um my view that day was that so much emphasis was on the game being stopped and, you know, Johnny Bairstow carrying the processor and chucking him over the fence and all mm. the other colour and movement and not quite so much on the conversation that's being had by Just Stop Oil, which isn't some extremist organisation, incidentally. What they're, what they're asking for is something which is right in the middle of mainstream British politics at the moment. But, um, but nevertheless, civil disobedience at cricket events is is another step uh, in, I suppose, uh, moving this into the mainstream, climate change and cricket into the mainstream. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that a lot of sporting events have, have had to face and increasingly will have to face. I think even Wimbledon this year, they had a JSO yep. protest and they had thought of themselves as quite green. They have done a lot. They have actually done quite a lot of good work within the sort of sustainability spectre, but they'd sector sorry not spectre but they'd signed a deal with Barclays which then drew protesters towards them so somewhere like Lords for example who've also they've also the MTC have done a great deal of sustainability work I yep. think we, we spoke earlier about Pat Cummins coming and MTC signing, signing up to the UN uh, Sports for Action framework but they've had this long-term deal with JP Morgan as their principal sponsor since 2011 and they are the biggest bank that lends to 
to the fossil fuel industries. And between, if I can just read this, between 2020 and 2021, they increased their fossil fuel financing and it, and they want to, they're the biggest also investor in fossil fuel expansion. And mm. that's something that we've been told just can't go ahead. Mm. There mm. was actually, there was an interesting piece in the Guardian earlier this week where they were talking to scientists all around the world about this year, which has obviously been, I think July was the hottest July ever on record. And we've had, well, you, you kind of, you know the drill, you can tick them off, you know, unusually warm sea temperatures, melting sea ice. But there was one quote that I thought was quite pertinent, and it was, we need to stop burning fossil fuels now, not sometime when we've allowed companies to make all the money they possibly can. And I think that's something that cricket should also think about. They need to stop signing sponsorship deals with fossil fuel companies now, not when they've extracted the money from them that they, you know, that they that they think they can, not when they think, oh, we could maybe do it for another couple of years. Yeah, like that transition period, if you like, is, is well and truly yeah. come to an end. And, yeah, and, and I think it's worth noting that if cricket takes a more interventionalist approach to mitigating you know, the challenge of carbon emissions, it's not going to change the world on its own, right? No, but cricket's no, a very, very powerful way to communicate with so many people who adore the sport. So, you know, you mentioned Pat Cummins before. Pat Cummins isn't saying that because he has started up his own organisation in Australia and now he's working with the MCC and the World Cricket Committee more formally on this as of a couple of weeks ago. He's not saying that that will in itself change the world, but it will mean that there is more pressure applied and that more people are invested and engaged in the conversation. Like That's kind of the, the natural flow and effect of high profile people using their megaphones exactly exactly and i you know i've got great disrespect for him because obviously as soon as you put your head above the parapet you're accused of being a hypocrite yep and he's had to take all that flack i mean obviously he's a professional cricketer i mean i think there's a conversation to be said within the icc and other organizations as to how many competitions there should be and whether cricket should expand you know whether it can afford to continually expand Mm -hmm. in that I suppose a a capitalist outlook but he is a professional cricketer he does have to fly in order to play abroad so he knew that putting his head above the parapet he'd get sick and he he still did it and he I don't think you could really have a, a better role model as someone who's speaking out than the Australian captain mm yeah, because historically that just wouldn't have been the case, right? Like there was this sense of sports people not talking about these matters and that that hackneyed old sort of cliche about sport and politics not mixing. But increasingly we're seeing around the world athletes feeling um, empowered to talk about other topics. Again, not because they think they're going to solve the problem themselves, not because they're world-leading scientists in, in this case, but yeah. they, they realise as a human being that they can do something and doing something is better than doing nothing. Exactly. I mean, that's uh, none of us individually are going to make a massive difference, let's face it. Mm. But together... Hopefully we can, we make small changes and we influence those who are more powerful yeah. to make the bigger changes. Right. I guess. So it's, it's the idea that you know if if you put enough pressure on policymakers, they'll they'll be left with no other choice but to make decisions which are in the interest of the the long term sustainability of the planet, not the sort of be it short term political interest or, yeah. or the interest of um, uh, where their bread's buttered politically with money coming in and donations and uh, on that side of things and commercial partnerships in cricket. Like yeah. um, it isn't about one thing it's a sort of a tapestry of sorts yeah and i mean you would know more about this than i would adam but do you think have you ever seen any discussion kind of within the icc community about whether you should have such and such a 
whether it's morally acceptable, I suppose, to have any any particular sponsor, or oh, do you th- think it's just highest bidder? I think last year, people. I, I have a lot of respect for the people that work at the ICC. Yeah. You know, I think they get a lot of grief when it's a federation of full member nations, of which there are twelve. Yeah. And at the very top of that tree, where the most important decisions are made, that is fairly well divorced from people who work for the organisation yeah. who have cricket. You know, at their heart, they they want to see the game expand into new parts of the world. They want to see cricket as a sport that has a bigger footprint for all the right reasons, right? Yeah. And would I expect uh, pinch their nose when this announcement went out just before the men's T Twenty World Cup last mm. year? But you know that that's just but one of these arrangements, right? Like last year, we saw the kerfuffle around not just cricket but other sports in Australia, for example, netball being an obvious one, where the back and forth led towards the organisation's being forced to make different decisions than what would have been expedient. Yeah. So that, that's kind of where where Cummins playing a role might have more of an influence than if he was just sort of, you know, jumping behind his keyboard and punching out a couple of tweets, right? He's speaking with some authority because he's been out there doing yeah. um, the work and having the conversations and working kind of up the chain. And I know that he's had some kind of stick from the right wing mm-hmm. in Australia, but would you say that generally he'd be... A respected figure? Yeah, they did some quantitative research last year around all of this. Dan Bredig wrote a story for The Age about it from memory where yeah, yeah the favourability ratings for Cummins are quite high. Right. But those who have a set against him for a number of different reasons, a lot of them going back to the removal of Justin Langer, mm. and there is a subset of people who are very angry that Cummins talks about climate change an awful lot, but that's reflective of the Australian community more generally, right? Yeah. Like, you know, there's a, a strong vocal minority of Australians who think this is all bullshit. Yeah. Um, and when we had our... Um, there was a, um, we had a Prime Minister about four Prime Ministers ago who I think he might have described it as bullshit, um, yeah. climate change. So, and we know in... Uh, the American political conversation at the moment that it was described as a hoax last week in a presidential vote. <laughs> so that, that is still out there. Yeah. But Cummins has got credibility, you know, I would say, uh, across sort of fair-minded uh, people who uh, who don't already have a starting point of him being a hypocrite because he flies places and so yeah. on. But that, that is there, but it's not the prevailing sentiment. Because I think that's the the thing about, about sports people is they can, whereas politics is, well, certainly in this country, can be very divisive. And no one wants to agree with something that another political figure from another party said. Yeah. What a what a sports person can do is 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 kind of rise above that and be the person that people can think maybe they are talking some sense. I think that's why it's so valuable. That's why sports such a, a great communicator. So we, you mentioned the MCC before, who you know their sustainability chief, whose name escapes me at the moment. It was Russell Seymour. Russell Seymour, who yeah. I think we had him on the pod at one stage a few years ago as well, had a big hand in helping shape the policies of Lords for this reason, right? Yeah. Like Lords is the the epicenter of the game in many people's eyes, for right or for wrong. Uh, yeah. You know, it's where the it's the you know, cradle of the laws and, and all the rest of it, and the symbolic home at that old ground. So they went out of their way to get on the front foot and continue to make the MCC a more progressive organisation yeah. on this front. So there is a conflict there between that and having a heavy emitter, or at least a financier of heavy emitters sitting as one of the primary sponsors. And like, But there's been room for members to show dissent and to have a conversation internally. And who knows what that might mean for what the MCC do in the future. Yeah, because I, I think that deal comes up at the end of this year, I think much like the Aramco deal. So it would be right. really interesting to see what happens basically on both those fronts. Right. Yeah, yeah. If people have made enough noise that they might think again, I don't know. <laughs> you mentioned that you know it's important. Not, I mean, we're having quite a negative conversation here, I'm aware <laughs> of that. But you, you said at the very start that with the next test, you're trying to not have it purely be a despairing 
discourse, if you like. Where can we look and, and feel like there is momentum for a better world where cricket's playing its part in that? It frustrates me a bit because I think there is a lot of good work being done and it isn't always shouted about mm-hmm. on a, a sort of a, a, a tiny level. And I am involved with this, but I'm not talking about it because I'm involved with it. The Cricketer magazine are running a, a greenest ground competition. Oh, great. So this is, I think the closing date is just finished, but this will be its third year, I think. And that's celebrating all that clubs are doing. Clubs have actually done, individual clubs have actually worked quite hard at this stuff. You know, they. I mean, I suppose lift sharing is a part of cricket anyway and has been forever, but kind of working on reducing, you know, doing more lift sharing, installing solar panels, ensuring they're not using plastics, having green energy, using kind of mowers and stuff that are powered by electricity rather than by petrol. And actually the ECB offer a fund which I feel like doesn't have enough things shouted about it, which enables clubs to, I can't remember what it's called, but prepare, I think it might be called the Sustainability Fund. Anyway, when you can apply for things like solar panels Mm -hmm. and help with flood prevention and things like that so if there are any clubs out there who are looking for funding do have a look on the ecb website that's great well what is i mean i know when we first were were talking about this on the final word you found it difficult to get boards to talk to you about their climate mitigation policies from memory it was only new zealand and the west indies who kind of got back to you with any real um, sense of rigor how do you feel now four or five years on Again, acknowledging that the two years of the pandemic yeah. made life very difficult for policymakers in in all sorts of public facing organisations, but but still, like take the ECB. Do you feel like in that five year window, from the the perspective you're coming at this from, that they ha- have got a, a set of policies in place which are are in line with um, what you're discussing? Yeah, I mean, I think the ECB have actually made a lot of progress. They've got a um, sustainability. I think she's called manager in. And I believe that the fu- there was fun there was funding that was ring fenced even after the pandemic when there wasn't right. really any money left, and they have had a strategy which has been supposed to be launched. I thought it was this season, but I haven't heard anything about it. So I think there is good work being done there behind the scenes by the ECB. But I just I'd like to kind of hopefully, if I speak to you next time or by next season, we'll know exactly what's going on there. But I think. There are some people who are genuinely behind it within the ECB. Other nations, I'm not sure so much. Obviously, there is there are issues with the poorer nations mm. who are struggling just to tick by. And I think that's one of the things the Hit for Six report talked about, which is having a climate resilience fund or emergency funds that people could dip into. Right. As far as I know, the ICC hasn't done that, but I think that would be, I guess, as all the, all the conversations about kind of climate equity and how the the richer countries have yeah the richer countries have of course the problem and the poorer countries are suffering that carries over from the political sphere into the into the cricket sphere i think and we spent so much time thinking about what world cricket might look like in 10 years and it's uh fairly sorry uh, old world that might be ahead of us from a administrative and you know what what yeah. um, what competitions and, and international cricket feels like in in relation to IPL owned franchise tournaments but yeah. um, I suppose if if the planet keeps moving in the direction it's going that 
That'll, that'll be a secondary concern. <laughs> It'll sort itself out, Adam. Yeah, that's right. Well, we won't have the, the flexibility to have conversation, existential dread, uh, yeah. about another T20 comp popping up when it's 50 degrees in Australia or whatever it works out to be, yeah. without wanting to exaggerate. Uh, Tanya, uh, um, thank you for your continued work uh, here. Make sure, if you're listening to this and you're on social media, to follow the next test. Uh, you'll, of course, be writing again for the Wisdom Almanac next year, holding everybody to account in the usual way, and we will um, speak to you regularly and check in uh, and make sure we're doing... <laughs> to the limited extent we can and what we can to keep talking about this challenge within cricket. Oh, no. Well, well thanks so much, Adam. And, and then just to say, there are lots of people out there who's who are kind of doing work work on, on these things. So, yeah, I'm just big shout out to everyone, really. Thanks to Tanya Aldred for making time to join the show once again. And that's it. We're at the end of another episode of The Final Word Weekly, which we've never called The Final Word Weekly, but sometimes you need to <laughs> help distinguish from the, the many other shows that are now in the feed. Yeah, and just before we finish, uh, I thought it was like timely as well to speak to Tanya Aldred about um, climate change this week when a lot of our colleagues in the media have um, you know, boycotted the Walkleys. Like, it may not sound like a big deal, but inside the industry it kind of is because they, they don't want to be um, associated with a, a big polluter who are sponsoring the Walkleys and, and so it goes. But you know, there are all sorts of different ways where you can apply pressure on decision makers and, um, and you know, um, hopefully uh, the conversations that, that Tanya is having around cricket will we'll see that in our sport as well. I think we can wrap it up there. If you want to get in touch with us, I mean, there's the internet. You, you pretty much just type us in. You'll figure something out. Uh, if you want to join up on the Patreon, it's patreon.com slash the final word. And if you want to find about, out about the Lord's Taverners and all of the good work and different fun projects they're doing, look in the show notes for this episode. You can find a link where you can join their mailing list and just follow along whatever it is that they're doing, including getting involved with games like the ones that Adam's been playing for and against the Lord's Taverners as a Billy Murdoch-style turncoat in the last few weeks. You too can switch allegiances whenever it takes your fancy because it's in a good cause. There's an England physical disability game on telly tomorrow. It's a, like the culmination of their of their um, domestic season, which is being shown on on the the, yeah, the proper Sky Cricket Channel and all the rest of it ahead of the the women's third T20 um, at Derbyshire, um, where England are playing Sri Lanka. So that's a step in the right direction. And a couple of my teammates in these Tabs games are both playing in that tomorrow. They both play for England, and um, I hope mm. to be able to get them on the final word next week to talk about the England uh, PD team and more generally the the progress that's being made there. Um, it feels to me like a, an area of conversation we haven't talked about quite so much, but these Tavs games have given me a chance to to meet some really interesting people. So that's one, one to mark uh, on the do list for, for this time next week, Jeff. Plenty more coming up through the week. There'll be some interview material. There'll be story time on the weekend and on and on we go with uh, just under a month now before the men's 50 over World Cup starts as well. This has been The Final Word. Thanks for being our company today. We'll see you soon. All right, bye-bye. I had to go about it